0: Hello friends, Pilates intrigued, and folks who just like listening to us talk about stuff. Welcome to the Thinking Pilates podcast, where we're having rich conversations about the Pilates mindset, how people move and are moved, the way we think about one another and play together, how we form relationships, and a whole lot of other human-y things we're interested in. I'm James Crater, a constantly curious mind, self-proclaimed word nerd, and consummate student of toddler and animal movement. Joining me is my good friend slash co-host Chantal Lopez, who you'll be hearing from soon. The Thinking Pilates podcast is a passion project created around ideas that inspire, provoke, encourage, and sometimes even challenge our beliefs around what is Pilates and how does it fit into your life. If you're a Pilates lover or someone who only knows it as that ab work class at the gym, we hope you'll stick around and explore some conversation with us as we hopefully help to expand the definition of Pilates. If you're loving what you're hearing, we appreciate your feedback. shares on social media and the ever-important review on iTunes. And yup, you can also find us on Spotify for all your commuting needs. After the show, we'll give you some more details about how to connect with each of us and more about what we're up to individually. A bit of a warning. As much as we like playground movement, we love adult vocabulary. We hope you won't mind, and that you enjoy all the other words in between, too much to care.
1: Well, hello everybody. This is Chantel, and I am with my dear friend James. How's it going?
2: Hey, Chantel, I'm good. Getting over a little bit of a sinusy thing. It's been really windy here in Sacramento, so if I if I sound weird, that's why.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we'll take that into consideration. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when you listen to podcasts, and you're like, why
2: did he sound so weird today? Yeah. It's, that's, that's the reason.
1: You were up late drinking. Don't lie. Well, that too. <laughs> that too. Whiskey, whiskey and allergies. Yeah, that's a, it's a bad combo. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll just edit all of that out. We are really, really excited to have Frank Frenzich on the podcast. Frank, how are you?
3: I'm doing great and happy to be here.
1: Yeah, Frank is the author and uh, I would say the creator of Exuberant Animal. He has several books of the same name. Um, He's an author, a speaker, a movement educator, and um, so much more. And so James and I are really thrilled, Frank, to have you and just... I have to say, as I was going through and, and doing some more research and listening to you and reading some more of your writings, I just, I'm I'm really, really excited for you to share your work with our community. I think the Pilates and movement community from this perspective is so ready, so ready mm-hmm. to hear Um this information. And, and it's a tone that we are embracing, I think already. And so what I thought I would do is just keep this kind of, um, straightforward and a little bit raw. And I, I did this kind of word association prank last night, as I was going through my notes, and I thought I would just read these words, um, and then see where that Takes you, like what you feel like the, the inspiration and jumping off point is for you in this conversation. So so here it is oneness, interconnectedness, interdependence, resonance, wisdom, sapience, non dualism, context and environment, joy, play, animal, Africa.
3: You've said all that needs to be said right there. <laughs> That's a description of my work and my life and what I'm really, what I really care about. So yeah, I, I think you've nailed it.
1: Well, tell us, give our audience a little bit of a sense of where you started and, and um, what, what's the motivating factor for the work that you're doing
3: yeah, well, you know, it's funny because uh, I've been reading up on Joseph Pilates and it <laughs> sounds like there, there's a certain um, similarity there because I was a pretty sick little kid, as I believe he might have been. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was only when I got involved in swimming and water polo and, and doing the you know, vigorous movement that my body began to change. And I, I went from being a sick little kid to being just as strong and fit as anybody else in my, in my cohort, you know, and, uh, that had a profound effect on me. And I went on to study other movement arts. I got involved in martial arts, rock climbing and that sort of thing, and, um, uh, became really passionate about it because it, it transformed my life so completely. And I even went to the point of studying human biology in college and going to Africa and, Um, and chasing it down. I mean, the body is vast, and you Mm -hmm. can study it, uh, for a hundred lifetimes. It's that, (laughs) it's that extensive. So, um, that kind of became who I am. And that's why I'm so curious about all of it.
1: Mm -hmm. And so how would you describe yourself? Like, what is it that you do and what is your work?
3: Right. Well, you know, I've, um, sometimes taken to calling myself the primal scholar because I'm really interested in paleo ideas and human history. And so, and and of course the movement part of it, but I'm also interested in the scholarship and I read deeply and broadly about anything that touches the body. So I've got kind of a hybrid approach where I, I do workshops and I, I train people and I move a lot and I'm really interested in that, the athletic side of things, but I'll, during the wintertime, I'll hunker down with a stack of books and work my way through and um, really interested in, for example, evolution and neurobiology and the history of my body. So so I love doing the background work as well and and putting it together in kind of a new synthesis, you might say.
1: Mm-hmm. And I was watching something, um, a presentation you gave, um, I think may have been a- to maybe in 2016, the Ancestral Health Ant- uh, Society. Tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about the concept that you were testing out there called the long body.
3: Right, that's that's a theme that comes up in a, in a few different places, but it, it's a very common theme in um, Native American or indigenous cultures, where the uh, the body is considered to be continuous with the natural world and the skin is kind of an an illusion you might say that um, it it gives the appearance of being an individual but really the body extends into the world and we're so incredibly sensitive to the world that uh, the idea of being an individual makes less and less sense. And that is confirmed in the world of neurobiology and, and uh, social neuroscience where there's a lot of studies now that are showing how sensitive we are to the so-called external conditions in the world. And that's, that's what the long body really means. It, it's just that we are continuous with the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find that really fascinating because in Western culture, the emphasis is so much on the individual. And I think that's a real distraction. We're we part of this flux and flow of life and uh, we're continuous with it. So mm-hmm. when we focus exclusively on the individual, I think we put ourselves, uh, we, we kind of alienate ourselves from the world. Can we, uh, can we just go back a step? So for our audience, uh,
2: which is predominantly uh, Pilates instructors and Pilates enthusiasts, they may be unfamiliar with what is ancestral health or ancestral
3: viewpoints. Can you go over that a little bit, Frank? Like what is sort of broadly meant by that and what that means to you? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. It, it's funny because I was writing about this in my new book, and I, I took up this phrase, ancestral health, and then I, I pointed out that all health – is ancestral in other words health has a history the body has a history and that that history is really deep um and this is something that um a lot of us don't appreciate how old the human body really is i mean if you go back uh, into evolution you begin to realize our bodies are, are literally millions of years old and when you appreciate the time scales, then you begin to see from this paleo perspective that, that living our bodies are crafted by evolution to live in wild outdoor environments. I mean, that's why we're here today is because our bodies are really good at, at that kind of experience. And that's what I refer back to over and over again. I mean, that's, that's what's normal for the human body is to live... Mm outdoors in wild environments and to live a, a, a tribal life in constant contact with natural experience. So that's, mm-hmm. that's who we are. And, and that brings up this whole concept of mismatch, which is basically our collision with the modern world. And that has happened in, basically in the blink of an eye. Because if you look at big timescales, the transition from um, hunter-gatherer reality to modern industrial digital world has happened almost overnight, and that gives us the mismatch and the consequences of mismatch, which are stress, anxiety, depression, and all the afflictions that we are having now and our struggles with adaptation so that's the big picture for you that i bring to it and and i i find it to have really a lot of explanatory power and
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's very it's it's, it's it's go ahead very potent i w- i was listening to you speak about this um in the presentation frank and and something that really struck me was uh well two things one that the modern human we're really living in an alien environment and then the the repercussions of that and you listed, you know, things like depression and anxiety and obesity and, um, diabetes. And you talked about not just the physical repercussions, but the psycho emotional, the spiritual, um, and you know, that I think lands with a lot of us because we see movement through that lens as a, as a whole, person experience and and that's a theme that definitely has been um deeply woven through the podcast and and many of our guests um so i do think yeah it's it's incredibly potent
3: and hey, i believe that um, joseph pilates himself would have recognized this. absolutely i mean he he understood the body at a deep level and he was very he was somebody who really appreciated context and he was maybe a little bit early yes. because a lot mm-hmm. of this big, the big history perspectives have only really come into play in the last 30 to 40 years. So, um, yeah, and now it's right in our face. I mean, the, the writing is on the wall. I mean, we are these wild animals trying to live in <laughs> these domesticated circumstances. It's an incredible challenge.
1: Yeah, he wrote he wrote about that too and he did a lot of his work outside and he was a, a huge advocate uh-huh. for interacting in the environment. There was you were talking about, you know, the individual versus the tribe and, you know, this idea that we're not separate. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to that in terms of environment and context, not just being nature but also the interdependence of people upon other people
3: right and that's that's the domain of social neuroscience and what they call interpersonal neurobiology and how the the massive effects of other people on our not just our mood and our emotion and our thoughts our cognition but even our health and this is something that the modern medical profession just hasn't come to grips with yet. We've got um, this one fellow, uh, Michael Marmot, who's done this work on what he calls the status syndrome. And there's one consistent finding is that health follows a social gradient. And that means if you are affluent, if you are of higher rank in human society, you're almost certainly going to be healthier than somebody of low rank. And superficially, people explain this. They say, well, you know, if you're of high rank, you have more money, and you can go to the gym, you can buy better food, you can go to the doctor. And that's, that only explains some of that effect. It's, there's something fundamental about being of higher rank or of lower rank that affects the way our bodies functions. And, and that, that ties into stress. Because if you're a higher rank, you have more power, you have more control, you have more options, and your body just simply functions better. So that's a really hard science view of how interconnected we are with one another.
1: Yeah, James and I have been exploring and talking a fair bit about the polyvagal theory and the health of the vagus nerve and how that plays a part in our interaction and responsiveness to one another, not just on a mental, emotional, you know, psychological level, but on a very physical and even biological level. So I I wonder, James, you had a question, something we were talking about earlier specifically with, I think that tied that into movement or movement facilitating that progress. Hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's just how, if we're talking about, uh, you know, higher rank having less stress, lower rank having more, uh, more stress, how do we begin to, uh, approach that from like a movement perspective? Like, is there as, as, you know, again, most of us being movement, uh, professionals, or at least movement interested, how how do we begin to affect that stress level or or that ranking stress level through movement? Is there something uh, that has been proven to help, or is is it just sort of where we're at, Frank? Or what's what's coming from that case study?
3: Right. Well, I have a, a pretty solid idea about how to do that because. When I look at, um, say, for example, the way physical education is conducted in the the modern world and how much competition there is in games and sports, and I think that that just feeds into this um, this sense of hierarchy that, that people already experience, and that there's plenty of competition in the modern world as it is, so why add to that? that stress load with more competition and more hierarchy instead I substitute a lot of team building games and you can do yeah you can do incredible body work with these team building games and get people moving in in extremely health promoting ways that are not stressful and that don't bring in that hierarchy so uh, I use a lot of medicine ball games that um, that are super fun, but they also um, build that sense of community and team so it, it's very it's very possible to do
2: yeah, that's something that we uh, Chantelle and I have been exploring we We created a class called Movement Lab, and in Movement Lab it's based on a lot of you know functional skill building things and Pilates, some somatics and polyvagal theory, but a big portion of it is interaction with other humans mm-hmm. in a playful yeah. way. And yeah. what, you know, the, the boundaries that that breaks and sort of the shift in people and what they believe they could do versus what they learn they can do is exponential. And so yeah. I'm in agreement with you that uh, just inviting humans to play together changes everything.
3: Right, and the other thing is just introducing touch to yeah. that environment is huge because we we tend to forget. But a lot of people in modern culture come from touch deprived families, mm-hmm. uh, low touch environments, mm-hmm. and it's it's entirely possible to grow up and go through an entire educational curriculum and never learn how to touch another human body. Exactly. That is, that's this huge gaping hole in our curriculum. And I think that, that absence there has a lot to do with our dysfunctional relations that we have, especially between men and women. So yeah, we can, that's where we can play a role and say, look, there are ways, there are healthy ways to teach, to touch another human body. Mm-hmm. And yeah. That's, that's extremely powerful stuff. I'd like
2: to add to that too uh, part of part of my career path is also I'm a myofascial release therapist and not only the act of touching someone but to learn how to accept being touched is yeah. huge yeah because a yeah. lot of my clients don't even know how to make themselves accessible to touch yeah. because they're never yeah. taught
3: yeah yeah and this is this is, I was fortunate because I, I studied martial arts and I got to learn that there is, you know, appropriate touch there. And then I also went to massage school and same theme right there. So after those experiences, it's like, yeah, yeah, I know how to do this, but a lot of people don't. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think it feeds into what we were talking about earlier, right? Whether it's a a, a chicken or egg kind of situation, but the isolation of (laughs) the self, right. Of, of the individual from the tribe, right? That we have these, we've we've created these boundaries. We've first created physical boundaries and now we're creating, you know, social boundaries, intellectual boundaries, like reasons to separate and isolate ourselves from one another. And I, you know, it's just to me another way to see how it's not working, (laughs) you know, how it's really not fostering wholeness in the person and in the family and in the community and in our, you know, larger, um, our larger global community. So it's fascinating to me when you can just, you know, you can unravel it and unravel it. And then you see in the moment, two people standing face to face, either willing to put their palms together, you know, and to really look at each other or who are terrified of, of seeing and
3: being seen. Yes. I start out my, um, my classes a lot of times with a game that I call animal magnetism <laughs> and you just designate, you, know, you put, you put people in, in pairs and one person is the coach and the other person, person is the athlete and the coach. And then they, they touch at fingertip level or wrist or forearm it doesn't really matter or shoulder it doesn't matter but the coach moves his or her body around the room and the athlete just has to stay connected so animal magnetism and Mm -hmm. you just maintain that contact and you learn to maintain that contact through feel through touch and it's a fun game, and people say, oh, okay, it's safe. It's safe for me to be in physical contact with another human body. Mm-hmm. That's a big lesson.
1: hmm hmm We do this thing in Movement Lab, and I, I've started to do it in all of my classes, which is um, James and I both are uh, certainly not the only ones, but we advocate, uh, walking like in between vigorous movements of movement exploration, we'll, we'll have people walk around the room. And something I became really aware of immediately, um, one is that everybody just follow, like everybody goes in one direction, right? Nobody's kind of willing to, to be exploratory in the, in the space, but also nobody makes eye contact, you know, and I, now it's just like a big joke. It's like, you know, look at the people in the room. They're part of the experience. They're here in your practice with you, you know, and it just becomes a lighthearted, funny thing, but it's so interesting to watch every time people look down, they look sideways, they look upward, but they They're deliberately unconsciously avoiding eye contact with their fellows. And the moment you just feel, you feel the room shift And, and people, even though it's uncomfortable, people are smiling. Like you can feel that, like the opening and the desire to be connected. And yet we're so programmed or whatever the language you want to use is to not interact. It's fascinating. Yeah,
3: Yeah. Yeah. And that begins really early on. I mean, we, uh, we set up school as a competitive environment. Uh, almost starting in preschool now, and you are pitted against your fellow students. And the goal is to win, you know, some scarce educational resource or job at the end of that thing. And that's really abnormal. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not a tribal experience that we would have had for most of our time on the surf. So it's very odd.
2: Well, And, and, you know, listening to those two conversations, my mom is a teacher, and just even thinking back to uh, the vocabulary used in school, it's, you know, sit at your desk, keep your eyes on your paper, do Mm -hmm. your work, worry about yourself. And it's like, well, shit, no wonder we're like this. You know, starting (laughs) from a very young age, it's like concentrate on yourself so that you can be better than they are over there. Who can achieve this? You know, and I guess there is a, you know, that's, it's, it's how we keep the modern world, you know, going forward, but it's in total neglect of, of tribalism,
3: of humanity, I guess. Uh, That just helps to remember the paleo and to use your imagination to go back. Okay. If you were living in somewhere in Africa, a hundred thousand years ago, the survival demands are so immediate, you, it's hard to find food, it's hard to find water. All of these things are difficult, and they're they're difficult throughout the day. And what keeps you alive? Well, the, the, the habitat keeps you alive, but the tribe is essential for keeping you alive, and mm-hmm. It's it's paramount to have good relationships with with the people in your tribe because if you are excluded from the tribe or you try to exist as an individual, you that's a death sentence. I mean, you you are totally dependent on your tribe to uh, make your way in the world. So we forget that.
2: Yeah, I I actually forget where I where I read this piece of information, but they were saying this this source was commenting on how a lot of our uh, uh, modern-day low-grade stress is coming from the fact that we uh, we desire to be liked by people mm-hmm. at a very deep, psychological level, because it means that you're accepted into the tribe. And if yes. you lived in close proximity with, with your tribe, you would know relatively quickly if you were liked or not. You would leave your hut, and if people talked to you, you're liked, and if not, you know you have to make amends. And the problem is now we live miles. We live countries. We live far away from people who are closely in our tribe, friends, family, coworkers, whatever the case may be. And we don't have that immediate feedback of if you're liked Mm -hmm. or not. And so it plays at this very, very deep level of of stress production. And that gets me into conversation of, there's a word that, that I've seen come up in your work, it's an African word, and I'm going to bastardize it, so please feel free to correct <laughs> it, Ubuntu, uh, you, <clears throat> and throat> yes. yeah, could you talk a little bit about that, about where that came from, and sort of what what you learned from your studies in Africa in regards to sort of what we've been talking about?
3: Right, well, it's a really simple idea, and it, it's, it, that word is African in origin, but it's common through all indigenous cultures, and that the idea is you identify, your your identity is wrapped up in tribe and in people. And the phrase you often hear is, um, "I am who I am because of who we are." You know we are people wow. through other people." And that is classic indigenous thinking. Uh, identity you just don't think of yourself as an individual you think of yourself as part of a of a group and that's very different of course from western american culture but ubuntu is a great reminder i first saw that in a, a museum in johannesburg and mm. it uh, really resonated with me and and of course it would be that way because when your survival totally depends on you you know, on being in a functional tribe, you know that every minute of the day. Um, and the other thing to remember, too, is that you're dependent on the oral tradition that's passed down by your ancestors. You can't, mm-hmm. even if you're a great athlete, if you parachute into Africa in, in today's world without an oral tradition, you're not going to live very long. And thats I think people in the paleo community forget this. They think it's all about being a a great athlete. But no, you you cannot survive without an oral tradition because the details of of staying alive in a a natural environment, it takes a long time to work out those details. And they have to be passed along by people. (laughs) So you're totally dependent on that. And that's why your identity is wrapped up in tribe, and that, that's the word Ubuntu.
1: It's awesome.
3: I love it. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Frank, let's talk a little bit about your new book, New Old Way, the subtitle um, Ancestral Health and Sapience for the Modern World. Now, we've talked a little bit about ancestral health, but tell us mm-hmm. about the word sapience. What, what's, can you de- what's your definition of that word?
3: Right. Well, first of all, I I became curious about this because it's right in our species name, right? Homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. And you would think that there would be a large cultural conversation about that, um, about wisdom. But there's not. And mm-hmm. we in the modern world, we talk a lot about intelligence and we test it and we build machines to be more intelligent. We, we value intelligent people and all this stuff, but we rarely do we talk about wisdom and isn't that odd? Because in indigenous cultures, it was assumed that that was an integral part of the, the art of living was to become wise. And how has that fallen off the radar? I mean, I did my Google searches on this, and I I looked at political platforms and saw very few uh, references to wisdom, and of course almost nothing on sapiens. So, isn't that? It it seems like a glaring omission. Mm. So I decided to to look into that, and what was my definition? What what was the indigenous view on this? And for me, it, it so much comes down to the difference between objects and relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm. when you're talking about intelligence, intelligence mostly operates on objects, and that's the the famous scientific reductionistic view of chopping up the world into little pieces and manipulating the pieces. And if you can manipulate the pieces, then you are considered to be intelligent. But wisdom is all about how those pieces fit together into some kind of coherent whole. And that's what we're in danger of losing right now. I mean, the world just seems all chopped up into bits and fragments. And uh, wisdom is the story that puts it together and that's that's what we need now more than anything else you know we we obviously need technical and policy solutions to you know make the world work but we need stories and we need wisdom we need sapiens to um, you know put us in the right relationship with the planet and with each other
1: yeah so when i hear the word Yeah, it's really, it's very cool because it's not something, I mean, we all, I think, intellectually uh, understand, I I think, that there's a difference between intelligence and wisdom, but we don't maybe spend very much time considering that difference. And as I was listening to you, Frank, I was noticing, like, every time you said the word wisdom, like, what the, what's the feeling, right, of the word, and it feels, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it feels a whole and it feels body connected and it feels experiential yeah, and it yeah. feels like there is, it's deeply multifaceted and, and also I don't think I would have chosen this language before speaking to you, but ancestral, like something very deep. Yeah. Um, yeah and yeah. you mentioned in our, um, uh, some of the questions we asked you before chatting that, our society is very Cartesian, right? That we put the mind, um, we separate the mind from the body and then we elevate it as a thing that's more important. And I think this is so relevant to the loss of uh, of the word sapience or the loss of our understanding or use yeah. of this word. And, and, and how relevant it is, um, the shift in language that has to happen when there is a shift in view and a shift in philosophy. And I am seeing just like a lot of these little teeny nudges of shifting, both in the way we approach Mm -hmm. movement, the way we approach health, and, and now really beginning to see, um, and hear this shift in language, which is, it's really exciting.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up Rene Descartes because, um, a lot of people have heard of Descartes, and they think, "Well, he was an old philosopher a long time ago. It doesn't really matter anymore, and that's all abstract." But he, he was really important because when he was a um, a young man, he resolved to be a great philosopher, and to do that, he decided that he was going to start with a blank slate, and he was going to doubt everything. And that was that was kind of in vogue at the time during the Scientific Revolution. But he went so far, he said, I'm even going to doubt the sensations coming from my own body, because there might be an evil demon, and that evil demon might be pumping false sensation into my brain. <laughs> and if that was true, then how would I ever know? So I'm even going to doubt the sensation coming into my, into my brain from my body. And that became fundamental for modern science. But from a native or indigenous point of view, that statement would have been considered crazy because that's (laughs) that's how you stay that's how you stay alive you trust the sensation from your body and you develop the sensation from your body to make to make yourself more sensitive so descartes in a in a big picture view of human history descartes comes across as a pretty abnormal radical thinker at best, his ideas gave us a lot of power and control in the world, and he gave us modern science, and we can be thankful for that. But there was a side effect, and you know we're living with that side effect now, and we've really got to fight back against um, Cartesian worldviews because I think they're uh, they're really damaging. The goal is to participate in the world. You know, we want to have participatory consciousness. We want to be with the world rather than separate from it. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. that means we need, to, we need this, uh, something better than what Descartes gave us.
2: <laughs> so to just get really explicit, how would a Cartesian mindset show up for people?
3: Well, it really shows up at scientific conferences where people, where it's all about numbers and measurement and quantification. Mm. Um, In in popular culture relating to the body, it really shows up in exercise science. And that, Mm. that whole discipline where we take people and we put them on treadmills or we put them on stationary bikes and measure all the stuff that's going on in their body. And that's kind of interesting but it's really cartesian and it just says that the mind and the body it, exist in separate realms and um you know i think we need to put the mind and body back together
2: really <laughs> <laughs> so like take the fit bit off and set it on a table somewhere and just gone <laughs> movement totally. a little bit <laughs> yeah
3: yeah that's uh, absolutely right <laughs> yeah
1: yeah there's so much there i mean i just feel like there's so much I want to dig into, um, with a lot of what we've been talking about, but I do want to bring us, um, back to movement specific. And Frank, I'm curious in the work that you do movement wise in your training and your workshopping potentially with, with folks, can you give us another sense or a better sense of like what your priorities are from this perspective in terms of the movement that you are um, encouraging or um, exploring, and and why? Hmm.
3: Yeah. Well, I I try and ground things in in the paleo, in the deep past, and I studied with a guy named Vern Gambetta for a while. He's considered the father of functional fitness, and uh, he's an athletic coach. And he had this phrase that he uses with his athletes and his um, physical therapy people. He says, what you want to do is build a better biped. And for him, that was all about sports and athletics. But for me, I I thought, wow, that really resonates. That's, that's a really good starting point. Mm -hmm. And so we do a lot of locomotion. We do a lot of different walking drills and running drills and agility drills and all that kind of thing. And it's not pointed at athletic performance exactly, but it's, you just want to be a better human animal and that's that's where we begin and then when that's kind of up and running then we move into what i call the the rapport building and these these are the team building exercises like animal magnetism another one we do is called sidewalk dilemma and this one's really <laughs> I fun i love the names <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, people gonna, looking
2: at, you may see some of those happen in Movement Lab now, just to warn you,
3: Frank. <laughs> okay. Those are yeah, really good, good. names. <laughs> right, well, for, for people who are listening in, what um, you just get um, people in pairs, and they're separated by 20, 30, 50 feet. It doesn't matter. And you just have them imagine that they're on a sidewalk, and they get to pass one another gracefully, so you start out by making eye contact and then off you go and you start walking towards one another. And it's not choreographed. You don't know whether you're going to go right or left exactly, but you make the pass and you try and make it as smooth as possible. And then you do it again and again and again, and you you build up that rapport and using your body to tell you which way to go. <laughs> and it's super fun because People end up laughing a lot and mm-hmm. they're, they're using eye contact a lot and they're letting their bodies take over and figure things out. So that's where I start my rapport drills yeah. and we play all kinds of games with that. And then only later do we introduce the medicine ball and some ropes and some other things, but it's all team building. It's all cooperative exercise.
1: Mm-hmm. So. I love that. That, it- it it really you talked about in your presentation um, uh, about um, the resonance circuit that Dan Siegel talks about, and, and James and I and many right. of our listeners are huge Siegel fans, and and we've you know kind oh, of crafted a lot of our own work um, on on a lot of his stuff. Um, but it brings me back again to to the human interaction. Right. Of really being being like just one human to another and 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 how we mirror each other and how we shape each other in the way that we respond. Um, And from a from a teaching perspective, this is something that we another kind of theme that we're always um, circling around and and often talking directly to is the difference between, you know, being the separate expert and training a body to do a thing versus showing up and, and being in relationship with the student in communication with the student and facilitating movement and just the difference of that. And I think also it's not just about, you know, the difference between training and facilitating, but it's also like, are you showing up and really being with the person in, in a human way, or are you keeping yourself separate and i I love that you're incorporating these kind of creative very pedestrian literally and figuratively uh, exercises right where where we're really forcing people in a in a fun way to interact and to practice interacting with each other from a wow. body perspective, not just an intellectual yep. perspective
3: one thing that, um, that you will like on this is that um, I studied Aikido for a while. I, I watched how Aikido teachers do their thing. And what you see a lot of times is the teacher will demonstrate a movement with a partner and then say, please try. And then they, everybody breaks off into their pairs and they, they're doing the stuff and they're practicing the movements and the throws. And then Sensei will clap his hands to stop the action and everybody stops. And then he will spotlight or highlight not an individual doing good stuff, but a rapport between two people. Mm -hmm. So he'll say, here, look at this. These two people have a great rapport with this movement and look at this, watch them move. And of course, everybody watches for a few minutes and then, uh, then he claps his hands and they, they go back. And that's, super cool because the teacher is not the star of the show. You know, the, the star of the show is the rapport between people.
2: I love that. Uh, that, that was, uh, that was the highlight of, of the episode for me right there. The <laughs> the vocabulary around that is pivotal. Cause I mean, how many times even as a teacher have you been there and you're, you know, trying to explain a movement and someone does it well in class and, the narrative around it is look how well this person moves through this exercise and to the simple shift and go, look at this person's rapport with that movement it just yeah. changes, changes the dynamic of it
3: all.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Right.
3: Yeah. Right. And it's a little bit of an uphill battle because the, the health and fitness industry, and especially the vanity industry, is always highlighting individuals on magazine yeah. covers and, and the like. And so it's easy to fall in that trap where it's the individual performance that we want to highlight, but instead we shift it and we say, no, the, the rapport is the star of the show. Yeah.
1: It makes me, it brings us uh, into a point which we have not, Um, talked about, although we asked you to share some things about this with us in our um, previous questions, Frank, which is the idea of curiosity. And um, we have been working with creating a theme for each season of the podcast. And this season we're working with curiosity. And it makes me think about um, some of the things in Movement Lab and even in just even Pilates classes that I tend to point out it's like, you know, fall of like when we're doing, and James does this so beautifully, like when we're practicing, we practice falling a lot in these classes. And it's mm-hmm. like it, to, to, to um, point out or to talk about, or to create dialogue around. Um, and I mean, verbal dialogue, but also the dialogue within yourself uh, as to like getting curious as to what your edges are. Like, how are you relating to yourself and, and, if you're if you're fumbling and falling and the shape looks really funky and you know you're you're laughing and you're finding yourself kind of in these positions or in these situations where it it's all new territory that that's like that's a win right that's a win because it's not about making the shape um, although obviously mm. there there can be value in that for sure but about the willingness to be curious about your body's potential so to me there's a whole it feels like a lot the same right not only rapport with each Mm -hmm. other as you're describing in aikido but rapport with yourself like with with your body self
3: yes it's it's all one big exploration and that um we're, we're in danger of losing that sense because there's so much knowledge out in the world now, and we feel, feel like there's an expert way to do everything. But uh, getting back to, to childhood, you know, midsummer, exploring the neighborhood, exploring the world, um, that's, that's the powerful drive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we tend to lose our play drive, we tend to lose our curiosity drive, but um, those are essential. And that's, I think, the role of the teacher is to inspire, just keep looking, keep the curiosity rolling, and it's yeah. at the heart.
1: Yeah. I want to circle back for a second to language, because you mentioned um, previously the the difference between movement versus exercise, physicality versus fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you feel like the repercussions of that language are yeah that's
3: that's a huge distinction um especially when you take your paleo perspective and look at you know human history and especially our our uh, kinship with the rest of the natural world you never see animals exercising ever. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> the, the only exception to that would be maybe if you put rats in a cage with a with a um, circle wheel, you know, mm-hmm. tread wheel, that uh, they will run on that, and you might call that exercise. But never in the wild will you see animals exercise. And as a concept, exercise is really a modern thing that's mm-hmm. only got a lineage maybe what a couple hundred years, maybe and it's it's really kind of a product of the industrial revolution, so exercise is, is kind of abnormal, and it's not even necessary for health what's what's essential for health is movement and mm-hmm. I think that that change of language is essential um, and and for my part, I don't like exercise, but I love movement mm-hmm. so that that opens things up because now you have a different a whole new range of options you know Um, a lot of things are included in the world of movement that wouldn't be exercise Um, now the other distinction i make is is the one between physicality and fitness and fitness is a tough word because it it's very confusing because in the world of biology it has a completely different meaning than in the world of you know the modern gymnasium um, in the world of biology, it simply means reproductive success—you know, having a lot of viable offspring—and that's a completely different idea from what most people think of when they think of fitness. So, for me, that's pretty confusing. And I like the word physicality because it, it's not just about muscle and you know cardio; it's also about sensation and the totality of what your body is doing in the world. So I I love this word, physicality.
2: Well, and when I'm listening to that, it sort of, in my head, goes back to the idea of the long body. And if we switch the vocabulary from exercise to movement and fitness to physicality, then you start looking at your environment, your habitat and other people as as stuff to move with or stuff to move against. Or you start looking at options. And you start yep. seeing a movement potential everywhere rather than movement or exercise as something to be done in this space. Right. And that
3: to me right. changes, changes everything. Yes. Yes. All of a sudden the whole world becomes this gymnasium. And um, for example, well, the, the leaves are falling now. And so a lot of people will be out raking their yards and that's, nice vigorous movement and it counts you know yes uh, right you can't dismiss it (sighs) yeah it counts totally why not why not rake your yard with the same kind of grace and agility that you would hope to bring to the gym right right yeah i'm sure joseph pilates himself you know it would have been interesting to see how he did his blue collar labor of the day you know digging (laughs) holes that kind of thing and sure all of that stuff is is powerful
2: mm-hmm. yeah, it's sort of you know I think it it's this i we tend to be really reductionistic in yes. in this belongs over here and this belongs over there, and it just sort of shows up in all all sorts of places, and you know what it sounds like is an invitation to to expand the horizon line of what is movement to the body and yes. where you move yes. and who you move with and how you move. Mm-hmm. Um, which mm. is, uh, you know, getting back to that wisdom thing or, or a light brain way of, of thinking about things and the mm. creativity side of things versus keeping it narrow-minded, which right. which is what we would hope is happening with movement and sort of our concept or our ideas around thinking Pilates versus necessarily just the doing this of Pilates. Mm-hmm. How can I bring these ideas, uh, that I'm studying within a studio or that I'm studying with a teacher or I'm studying by myself and start to introduce them to, to life outside. So I'm just curious, how do you, how do you see movement practice, uh, going beyond movement practice? Like what are you, you seem like the kind of guy who's given us a little bit of thought. How do you? How does his movement practice inspire lifestyle practice?
3: That I'm. I think the carryover happens when you avoid specialization. When you try and do your classes outdoors. When you do it in different settings. And even bring in different ideas, getting out of the the pigeonhole of being in a particular style of movement. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, one one example of this that was really interesting was Bruce Lee because he was a guy who really fought back hard against uh, pigeonholes. and he he got himself in a lot of trouble in Hong Kong because he uh, he said, look, you know, the classical styles really are dead ends because they are only styles and they don't translate into the real world. And so one of his 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 whole thing of Jikudo was the style of no style and saying, Let, let's just get away from the pigeonhole and let's be completely adaptive in the world. And I, I thought he had some great ideas along those lines. So, mm-hmm. Yep, I even do stuff like depending on the workshop setting I'm in, but I'll even do crazy stuff like I'll bring in ladders and teach people how to climb a ladder, or bring in five gallon buckets and show them how to how to lift a bucket. You know how to, how can you do this like an athlete or a dancer? How would a dancer lift a bucket? How would a dancer climb a ladder? And suddenly the lights go on for people.
2: Yeah, I mean it sounds like. Uh, applying the ideas of diversification within the movement, uh, is sort of what inspires the health of a lifestyle. Yep. And I think that's an important message. I think that's an important message for everyone to sort of hear, but particularly our audience, uh, because Pilates can oftentimes get, um, you know, probably like a lot of methodology, this method, and it sounds that way with uh, martial arts, this method is more advantageous than this method, or this is the correct way to do this, or this is the proper way to do this. Um, and so it's refreshing to hear that all of the ways have
3: value. Yeah. You know, another, another way to think about this is um, a phrase I heard some time ago, I try and know everything about one thing and one thing about everything or the T model of knowledge where, The the crossbar at the top of the letter T represents horizontal learning. So you go out into the world and you just try and know a lot of different things about broad fields of study. And then the, the vertical of the T is where you specialize in one thing that's narrow and between those two, with the T model, now you've set yourself up for success because you you know context, because you you did the broad study, and then you've got one discipline that you're really good at. I think that's a nice model there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really relevant for, for us, as James is saying. It, it's, and from this viewpoint of not having to give up, Pilates as the thing that you do and specialize in, but to allow there to be fluidity and influence of, mm-hmm. of different modalities and different ideas. And like it's so that it doesn't have to become so anchored and rigid, but that there is just a right. fluidity within even the specialization, right? That there is an, ex- right. there, there's a, an expression beyond the bounds, even if, you know like pilates is your jam and that's the thing that you love and you're not going to give it up you know it's not just about yes. like make it one of many things you do which is awesome obviously I, I would advocate for that but if it's not for those listening you know it's also just about how do you bring that how do you bring that fluidity of attention and and teaching to to the specific thing
3: yeah yeah, and it's you know we're all part of the movement community, and I I used to get wrapped up in this this sort of you know my sensei can beat up your sensei because you know my art is superior your art or whatever and <laughs> there, there was a lot of that but eventually I came to the conclusion that it's like all the movement arts are really valuable <laughs> they're all yeah. really valuable yeah so. yeah. So, Frank, what are you curious about
2: right now? Like, where are your studies or your practices taking you? What's Where are you drawing
3: inspiration and information from? Well, you know, like so many people right now, I'm really concerned about um, this encounter with the future and what you might call the hockey stick of, uh, of change over time. And what's happening is this radical acceleration of change, and the challenge of adaptation. I mean, how are we going to adapt to this? The world's going to be really, really different in the next 10 years. And how are we going to be able to trust our bodies to do, you know, live in new ways? Cause we are going to have to live in new ways. And how can we educate ourselves to do that, to trust the body to adapt and how can we change our curriculum to uh, reflect the the challenge of our time so I'm you know I'm all about trying to save our life support systems and that's uh, that's the work we need to be doing right now. So you know, the, the curiosity for me right now is what what is activism all about and and how can we be activists in the world and still be happy? That's um that's a big challenge and activism is this discipline that um is we don't really know what it is to be an activist in the modern world. It's um, it's a new thing. So there's a lot to be learned there. Yeah. I mean, do I spend all my day on the phone calling my, you know, congresspeople or do I protest in the street? Do I go to law school? How do I make a change? Do I talk to my neighbors? What do I do? You know, um, there's a million possibilities. And uh, and once again, we have no curriculum, for activism, you can go all the way through to a PhD and not really know how to be an activist. So there's a lot uh, to study at the moment.
2: Yeah, that's uh, you know that that exact conversation came up for Chantel and myself and um, the original co-host of this, Deborah Colway, right at the at the uh, the elections, the presidential elections. And, you know, for us, it just felt very chicken little, you know, everyone running around with, you know, sky is falling, heads cut off, not, you know, flagrantly not knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. And what we sort of landed upon was, um, you know, uh, and I think sort of where the ideas of Movement Lab originated from and, and sort of are some of our decisions within the Thinking Pilates podcast is, helping people to get uh, at least a little more clarity in discerning where are they in the world and what is important to you today. Instead of trying to solve all of the problems, what becomes pertinent and important for you? Because that's undoubtedly going to be a little different than your neighbor and undoubtedly different than the next tribe over. And if we all begin to concentrate and really figure out what is valuable and important to me today... You know, I think that's a that's a step towards activism. How does that How does that
3: land? Yeah, that sounds just right. And in fact, that lines up with the T model. Um, you might say the T model of activism, where you study the big range of challenges in the modern world, but you you can't possibly act on all of them. So you pick one particular focal point for your activism, and you go for that. So um, that might be a way to manage all the uh, complexity of the challenge.
1: You also mentioned, Frank, in your, um, we asked you a bit about, about curiosity and what's on your mind. And, and you mentioned the, the common ground between health and activism. But you also said that for you, the short answer really comes down to the power of meaning. And I think this is what, right. you know, James and I really and Deborah were percolating on, which is how do you how do you land on decipher and, um, you know, kind of orient your action from what's meaningful to you uh, rather than feeling uh-huh. like you have to, uh, you know, c- collapse on the floor in a puddle because everything seems you know scary and and not working yeah. well,
3: yeah, and that's um, the power of meaning, the power of purpose, the power of why that is um, there's a huge body of evidence now showing that that is um, beneficial to health every time you can focus on your on your meaning and your purpose, your better able to withstand stress Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that is something that we can do as teachers is to remind people to find some anchor some sense of meaning and in japan this is called ikigai the reason to get up in the morning and Mm -hmm. it's um you know it's it's powerful so um you know, Victor Frankl, when uh, he wrote his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he often quoted uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and he who has a why to live can endure almost any how. Mm-hmm. So that's worth uh, focusing on.
1: Yeah. God, what a really great way to end the interview, I think. Yeah. I think it's perfect. <laughs> I mean, you know, to really leave the leave you guys listening with just this This kind of sweet question, hopefully that doesn't feel too overwhelming, (laughs) which you can I think sometimes, but what's the meaning of your life? No, but, but I mean, really like, what is the, what's the purpose, right? For doing the work that you do. And is there one small way potentially to, to highlight or bring to light that, that meaning or that purpose uh, in your very next interaction with a student? that's it's powerful right
3: yeah yeah, yeah. it's uh, we need that reminder Yeah. Absolutely.
2: yeah. Well, well thank you so much frank for for being here with us and what a what a pleasure it is to finally get the chance to talk with you i've been a fan of your work for a lot of years and listened to you on a lot of podcasts and what an honor to actually get to
3: to talk with you thank you it's it's been super super enjoyable for me i always love talking about bodies and health and the world